All right, man. Welcome to the introduction for Crow 777 Radio, episode 129. Jason Lindgren is with me, and we're going to be talking about a lot of things today. Uh, some of it's a bit depressing, but at the end of the day, it's things that people need to be aware of so that they can make good decisions about the things they eat, the products they buy, um, just basically everything that you ingest in the modern era. Um, I mean, if you're a person that thinks it's someone else's duty to make sure that your products are safe and that what you put in your body is safe, I got news for you. That's your responsibility. But on an up note here before we jump in with Jason and cover Baron Monsanto, uh, Jason and I are going to meet for the first time day after tomorrow, today being uh, October 8th, and we're going to complete the principal filming for Shoot the Moon. And that also means that episode 130, which is the next episode, will be the first episode where we are both in the same place. Uh, having met for the first time, episode 130 will be recorded while we're together. Anyhow, let's jump in with Jason Lindgren and cover some pretty horrendous things about big corporations that do a lot of unhelpful things in our world, to say the least, man. There it is. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is episode 129. Jason Lingren is with me. Uh, we're going to be talking about some things today that I think a lot of people will find interesting. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the timelines associated with Bear, the corporation, and Monsanto. And at the end of the day, I think probably a lot of people who have gone towards healthier foods, uh, healthier medicines, organic ideas probably based in in part of what we're going to talk about here but anyhow welcome jason good morning back in louisiana for this episode and the live one we did yesterday but soon we will be doing these together right uh you're going to be here in a couple days for the first time we are going to meet face to face and uh knock out the rest of the principal filming for shoot the moon um but anyhow what do we have in the intro oh the Greg Carlwood uh, from the Higher Side Chats was apparently removed from iTunes. I'm not sure why. I'm wondering if this is going to be an EU guidelines thing, but do you know anything more than that, Jason? No, I do not. I just know he's very upset about it, and he put the word out there that it happened, and if anybody knew anything about it to help, he would appreciate it. Yeah, I'm not, you know, I don't give a damn who is getting censored. I don't agree with it. But, and, you know, I know Greg Carlwood. Uh, he was one of the first people to interview me, actually. And that was many years ago. And he was working to build a community on iTunes then. So just the sheer amount of work that is so casually thrown aside. And, and that sets aside the main issue, which is censorship here. Um, hopefully, uh, it will come back online, and maybe this will blow past. Uh, let's keep a positive mind till we hear more. Uh, what else do we have, Jason? Well, also on the censorship front, since they seem to be at it again, the 9-11 Truth page on Reddit has been completely censored. The whole thing was taken down, and according to some sources, a single link to the 9-11 official commission report was put in its place. I actually just tried to do it a few minutes ago, and it just said I wasn't allowed to go there to the actual Reddit section. And I don't use Reddit, so I don't know if there's ways around that. But apparently the whole thing is locked uh, from what the, what they call quarantined. So <laughs> it is what it is. Wow. Freedom of speech is dying another day. Well, you know you know what this is, Jason? It's a one-to-one -one allegory for the, the barn wall and animal farm. People should go out and read Animal Farm. It's exactly what's going on here. Um, 
unreal that we have reached these times. You know, if you're not harming anyone, then what's the problem? And, uh, you know, Jason and I have a rule. We do no harm. We will never harm, well, personally for me, I will never harm living beings. And to me, that's the line in the sand. But what else do we have, Jason? What shows have you done since we've recorded last? You know, I did an interesting live stream uh, with Z Proxy, Cosmic Surfer, and I believe the other person was Stan. These guys have been 360 filming the sky and tracking uh, in static images and other ways and actually making virtual reality renderings of how uh, a viewer in the world would uh, be able to see the path of the moon over time. It's quite an interesting thing, and it gives a perspective that I don't think a lot of people have, have thought about. Anyhow, that channel is Z Proxy, uh, just how it sounds. The letter Z, the word proxy. Um, what else, Jason? There was another one. And I believe you did Connecting the Dots in Between our last recordings, which is the nice British lady and an American fellow. Right. They they asked me to come on, and I did. Seems like that's been a little while. And I may have also done Sun and Moon United again since then, but I t- truly just don't remember. So many shows, Jason, they all bleed into each other. And I guess we'll just throw this out there. If anyone's got any new places that Crow should go, let's get them out there some more. Let's get some new, fresh ears hearing some good material. Yeah. Um, anyhow, I guess I can't think of much else. Uh, it's going to be interesting here in a day or two uh, when you're here and we meet face to face for the first time. But I have noticed this timeline, there are more bullet points than usual. So what do you say we dive in? Yes. So we're doing Monsanto, Bayer, and IG Farben in between there, of course. Now, before anybody has a cow, of course, things got left out. It got to the point where this was just a massive list. And I'm sorry if I didn't hit every bullet point to show how awful these companies are, but I think there's enough here to show how awful these companies are. Yeah, there's going you know, it, it comes down to so many people, you know, o- online you see so many people talking about uh, healthy eating, healthy living, growing your own food, organic food, all these ideas. And, you know, in, in, in some way, the, the timeline we're about to cover is probably what got a lot of people thinking in this direction again. Uh, after all, it's not too many, you know, a generation or two ago when the idea of organic was, well, what do you mean? This is mostly how we get our food. But to, to put a fine point on it, you know, we've reached a point where the medicine in the Western world is pretty much pharmaceuticals. It's what it is. For the most part. That's not 100% true, but for the most part. And this sets aside the older ideas where uh, food was, in fact, part of your medicine. Ingesting the things you ingest was part, you know, could be associated directly with your health. There are still places in the world that have a, a vastly different idea of what medicine should be and what healing is. After all, if I was to ask you, Uh, What medicine do you want? Do you want to take a pharmaceutical or are you more interested in an idea where the body is completely healed? All these ideas on the table as we go through this timeline. Now, it's very important to understand that the pharmaceutical companies are directly involved with what kind of medicine you get today. It's beyond lobbying. They directly manipulate the system in their favor. So keep that in mind as we build the timeline here, just what was going on in the background. 
Well, you know, one thing that's crazy about the modern era is like you'll you'll see on TV there's constantly these ads for pharmaceuticals. Quite often, they don't even tell you what the drug is for, and they're telling you to ask your doctor if this is right for you while they're listing uh, all these things that could go, go wrong. And a lot of times that list is atrocious. It's like, really? Are, are the side effects worse than what you're trying to cure? Um, but my point here is, so we live in an information age of sorts, even though we're fighting off censorship. My point is, is any person who who's going to take these things, has the resources they need to look and see what other people have said about it and what's going on. So in one way, it's horrible, some of these things that go on. But in another way, it's almost like society has shunned responsibility to do the due diligence. But anyhow, let's jump in, Jason. So I'm going to start with the mainstream history that Bayer themselves put on their websites. And then we're going to start going into the reality of it all. The general partnership, Frederick Bayer et Comp was founded on August 1st, 1863 in Barman, which is now a district of the city of Wuppertal, by dye salesman Frederick Bayer and master dyer Johann Friedrich Westcott. The objective of the company was the manufacturing and selling of synthetic dye stuffs. The production of these dyes from coal tar derivatives had only been invented a few years previously, opening up a new field of business for the still young chemical industry. The target market was the textile industry, which, at the time, was growing rapidly in the wake of industrialization. The natural dyes that had been used until then were scarce and expensive. New inventions, such as the synthesis of the red dye alizarin and the strong demand for tar dyes, led to a boom in sales, which led to significant expansion. Many dye factories were built at this time, but only innovative companies with their own research facilities and the ability to exploit opportunities on the international market managed to survive over the long term. Bayer was one of these companies. The financial foundation for expansion was laid in 1881 when Bayer was transformed into a joint stock company called Farben Fabriken Vorm Friedrich Bayer & Company. The company's impressive growth in its early years is evident from the size of the workforce, which grew from three in 1863 to more than 300 in 1881. Wow, so much here. And what's interesting, well, there's a few interesting things. 1881 is a strong candidate for the age change. I think it's quite possible that was the age change, uh, going by the older ideas uh, that this world has ages. But, when, you know, how many people listening would have ever considered that a company like Bear started in dying? Um, and when you're talking about 1863, it says from their own website that the, uh, the idea of chemical production is in its infancy. So basically, we can logically put together that the old science-based, natural science-based or alchemical ways are almost certainly playing into the manufacturing of the first synthetic dyes. And from our color show that we did and other things, there is a whole alchemical bent uh, when you begin to dye fabrics. You and I covered this directly, Jason, about the vibrational rate and tone of certain colors, and that when you dye fabric, the fabric takes on that change, if you recall. Absolutely. Now, continuing on, between 1881 and 1913, Bayer developed into a chemical company with international operations. Although dye stuffs remain the company's largest division, new fields of business were joining the fold. Of primary importance for Bayer's continuing development was the establishment of a major research capability by Carl Duisberg. A scientific laboratory was built in Wuppertal Elberfeld, which was also the company's headquarters from 1878 until 1912, that set new standards in industrial research. 
Bayer's research efforts gave rise to numerous intermediates, dyes, and pharmaceuticals, including the drug of the century, aspirin, which was developed by Felix Hoffman and launched onto the market in 1899. The financial foundation for expansion was laid in 1881 when Bayer was transformed into a joint stock company. The company's impressive growth in its early years can be directly linked to its growing workforce. So one thing that's interesting here, Jason, is this timeline provided by uh, Bayer itself is stating that between 1881 and 1913, they launched into a chemical company and all these other operations. So if it is correct that the true age change, in other words, a step forward in human development or however you'd want to view an age change, uh, this company is right there. So if, in fact, I am correct by asserting the age change was actually 1881, you're seeing a company here lock stock to the sky clock as they move forward into the next thing they're going to do, which basically in this case is almost like we could say, or we could assume, which is a bold thing to do, um, that they're coming away from the older natural sciences. And now we're going to start getting into, uh, you know, modern synthetic chemistry and uh, pharmaceuticals and these types of ideas. But I mean, Jason, from the research that you did, uh, can we deduce here that this is maybe one of the main beginnings of modern pharmaceutical industry? Oh, there's no doubt about it. And behind the scenes, I'm sure the Rockefellers get involved at some point once they get standard oil going and start manipulating the medical system in the beginning of the 20th century, as we've shown before. Now, what do we need to say about that? We've said the name so many times. I mean, if it mattered, they were there almost, right? Absolutely. So the aforementioned German chemist Felix Hoffmann famously synthesized two drugs, although it is known others were also working on similar projects. One was aspirin, which is one of the most widely popular and beneficial drugs ever made. The other one is heroin, one of the most harmful, life-destroying substances ever created. These two drugs represent the efforts of late 19th century chemists to create new substances that were supposed to be used as medicines, and Bayer cleaned up in a huge way with both of them. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting thing here. You know, it's like the yin and the yang, the uh, the positive pole, the negative polarity idea going on here. But there's an old story, Jason, and I was going to look it up before we did the show, but I'd, I'd forgotten, so I don't know its accuracy. But there is a claim out there that aspirin was first recognized uh, because I think it was chimpanzees or some primate uh, was peeling the bark off a tree or something like that. And I don't know how accurate that is. But the idea I'm getting at here is there's two sides of nature here, right? Um, you know, they're going to make aspirin which, I mean, that's probably in everyone's house listening to this. And by the way, you will notice that just getting plain aspirin these days is not so easy. There's all these coatings and time releases and all these things. Aspirin keeps coming further and further away from just a little tablet of aspirin. And then the other side of this coin, of course, being heroin. But I would point out that, I mean, you can probably track back the idea of what opiates do in China for a hell of a long time. Anyhow, there's probably some validity to the monkey story since it is made, if I recall correctly, from the bark of a willow tree. Right. I was going to say it, Jason, but I I didn't look it up beforehand. And you know what happens when I misspeak here. A thousand people are going to call me out. But that is the memory that I have as well. So going into a little more about heroin, it is said to have made its debut at the 1898 Annual Congress of German Naturalists and Physicians, where it was presented as a synthetic cough medicine that was 10 times more effective than the folk remedies that were commonly used at the time. Bayer is said to have produced more than a ton of heroin within a year and was selling the highly addictive drug in 23 countries. 
by the year 1900, heroin, driven by intensive advertising, was Bayer's number one product. It was made available in lozenges, salts, and pastilles. And funny enough, heroin was considered extremely respectable at the time. But most of this seems to have come from some very clever early advertising techniques. Bayer would target physicians, which, of course, led to hundreds of favorable clinical papers. The Boston Medical and Surgical Journal gushed, Heroin possesses many advantages. It's not hypnotic, and there's no danger of acquiring a habit. <laughs> so th this, this reminds me of the disco era, which I was alive to have seen when cocaine became all the rage. And the claim was there, look, we got this new drug, makes you feel great. And guess what? It's not addicting. <laughs> so I, I would wonder, um, Jason, what the, what the truth behind this? I mean, was at this period of time where they're producing however many tons of heroin a year you just said, um, is there a huge addiction problem that's never really been documented? Hard thing to know. But the other thing that piqued my interest is where were all the poppy fields, uh, I wonder, that this was coming from? Was this uh, coming from Asia or Afghanistan. I mean, interesting. Very interesting. And I, I'm sure they didn't know right at first, but how long does it possibly take to realize that someone's overdoing it with a certain medicine? Well, that's the thing. You would imagine that if it was, you know, over the counter like this, that addiction would have become a problem quickly. As a matter of fact, people can go look up, I think it's around the, the turn of, of the 1900s, what Coke was putting in its formula at the time. Um, and you would have to suspect that addiction must have been high if it was lozenges, salts, all these over-the-counter things. I mean, look at anything that gets you high, alcohol or any other thing. But uh, I doubt if there's going to be much... Uh, much we can look up to discover, you know, the extent of what addiction might have been going on in this time. Laudanum was another one that a lot of people had problems with. And if you did have a laudanum problem, you were looked down upon as kind of a dum-dum. Well, you know, in some ways, this is a funny thing, Jason. Alcoholism was a similar thing in my lifetime. As a matter of fact, you can go back to the old movies of the 50s and see people who were becoming alcoholics or looked down on. And that whole thing changes uh, in my lifetime where all of a sudden alcoholism is a disease. It's not a choice you make. Uh, it's a disease. It's not your fault. And before that, it was basically looked at as, look, you're deciding to do this. So, yeah, man, it goes to show you. This is long before Edward Bernays, but similar Marketing techniques are being used clearly, and again, I doubt if we'll ever be able to find good documentation of the addiction levels that, that followed all this. Now bumping up a little bit in time, Monsanto was founded in the year 1901 in St. Louis, Missouri as a chemical company. The founder was a man named John Francis Queenie, who was a 30-year veteran of the nascent pharmaceutical industry. He funded the firm with his own money and capital from a soft drink distributor. He used his wife's maiden name for the company. The company's first products were commodity food additives, such as the artificial sweetener saccharin, which is thought to have been first synthesized in 1879, caffeine, first thought to have been isolated in 1819, and vanillin, first thought to be isolated in 1858. Saccharin was known to be problematic even in the beginning of the 20th century, but it would start to be used as a sugar substitute with shortages brought on by the First World War, and the United States government suspends the restrictions that had been in place for food usage. Between the three products of saccharin, caffeine, and vanillin, and the Coca-Cola bottling company as a primary customer, Monsanto has sales reaching $1 million.
<laughs> so Coke's, Coke's their big customer, huh? But there's some interesting things here. Um, I wish I'd been taught in school. Let's see, they founded in 1901. If I was taught in grade school how to count the ways, that might have been useful. But he takes his wife's uh, maiden name, Queenie. I guess she's royal or something. But I think as we move in here, uh, it's going to get a little more interesting. And I did jump the gun when I told people to go look what was in early Coke. But go ahead. Polychlorinated biphenyls. These have been used industrially since 1929. Industrial mixtures of PCBs are known by commercial names, such as aerochlores, canachlor, clofen, sovol, and fenchlor. Now, PCBs were widely used in insulating fluids in transformers and capacitors, as well as hydraulic systems, surface coatings, flame retardants, inks, and other minor uses. Concerns about human health effects associated with halogenated aromatic compounds such as PCBs and hollow wax date to the 1930s and 1940s with the reports of rashes and liver abnormalities for workers in manufacturing plants and electricians. The identification of polychlorinated biphenyls are chemicals of environmental concern and these date to the late 1960s when they were reported nearly simultaneously by three different research groups to be present in seabirds and seabird eggs in three different coastal ecosystems. Subsequent research in the late 1960s and early 1970s confirmed the widespread presence of PCBs in numerous ecosystems, their relative persistence in the environment, and several instances of known or suspected adverse effects associated with various organisms exposed to and incorporating PCBs into their tissues, examples being mink and chickens fed on fish or fish meal. In 1968, contamination of rice oil used in food preparation at a location in western Japan by PCBs from a leaking transformer caused human health effects for people who consumed the polluted food. This was designated the Yusho Incident. A similar incident occurred in 1979 through 1981 in Taiwan, the Yusheng Incident, Detailed studies of the PCB oil involved in these incidents suggested that some or all of the observed adverse effects may have resulted from the presence of small amounts of chlorinated bibenzonferans or chlorinated dibenzodioxins. By 1971, the concerns about human health and environmental impacts led Monsanto, the producer of PCBs in the United States, to a voluntary ban on sales of PCBs except for closed systems use. Monsanto ceased all production in 1977, and there was no large-scale increase in imports. PCBs were banned from production and further use in the United States in 1978. Equipment that already contained PCBs, for example, transformers, were allowed to remain in use, but restrictions were placed on the disposal of PCBs when the equipment was decommissioned. Delegates from 122 countries completed a draft treaty on persistent organic pollutants in December of 2000. The POPs that were initially addressed and banned from further use include Chlordane, DDT, Dieldrin, Endrin, Heptachlor, Mirex, Toxaphene, PCBs, and Hexachlorobenzene. Limited selective use of DDT for human disease vector control is allowed in some countries. And of course, Monsanto knew that this was a problem way back in the early 20th century. 
And, you know, there's a couple things here, Jason, like the DDT thing in the 70s, that was a big deal. Um, you know, the whole big thing was look at all these birds can't reproduce because they've got DDT in them, which is being sprayed everywhere. Um, and and their, their eggshells are too thin. But what really strikes me about this is if you look at the, the beginning of Bear, which is where I mark the age change at 1881, we haven't even gone 100 years in here. This is a drop in the existence of human beings bucket uh, for the amount of time human beings have probably been in this world. Look at this, 1881, and we're not even to 1981. Well, we are in, in Taiwan, 70, 79 to 81, just 100 years, and look at the amount of damage uh, that has been done uh, by the shift away from natural sciences uh, to synthetic chemistry. Unreal, man. Now, according to the Environmental Protection Agency, PCBs have been demonstrated to cause a variety of adverse health effects. They have been shown to cause cancer in animals, as well as a number of serious non-cancer health effects in animals, including effects on the immune system, reproductive system, nervous system, endocrine system, and other health effects. Studies in humans support evidence for potential carcinogenic and non-carcinogenic effects of PCBs. The different health effects of PCBs may be interrelated. Alterations in one system may have significant implications for the other systems of the body. You know, you, you have to wonder, Jason, uh, you know, so they ban all this stuff. They knew it was bad. They used it for a period of time. Pretty soon, whatever it was, all these nations get together, they ban it, they quit using it. But you've got to wonder what the ongoing effects may be. Um, they're demonstrating at one point that it's in the environment, it's in the animals, it's in the water, uh, it's in plants, it's all over the place. Uh, so how long does it take all that stuff to clean out? And as a side note, uh, when I was young and animals, family pets died, uh, mostly it was from old age if they were lucky enough not to, you know, find some horrible end like a car accident or being hit by a car or something. But never uh, in the 70s or 80s that I can remember did I ever see like the family dog have tumors all over its body and die. Um, by the early 2000s, uh, where some of my in-laws lived, there was a street where every single dog on that street died from these big cancerous tumors all over their bodies. And it goes to show you the impact of these things. And one has to wonder, um, so they banned this back in the day, uh, are the effects still being felt now? Uh, has it been swept under the rug? What's going on? And this, in fact, is one of the real downsides with all this synthetic chemistry. Um, as I've said so often, uh, so much of science has little regard for the natural world and herein is the real downside of all that. Next let's talk about the Plant Patent Act of 1930 and this is a federal legislation that granted patents to new varieties of plants excluding sexual and tuber propagated plants. The act states that the plant must be clearly distinguishable from other varieties. And why are we going to talk about this? <laughs> Well, exactly. But I'll, I will chime in. I've had directly to do with this. When I was in San Diego, I grew many things for years. And what we saw was people cloning like bamboos and other plants uh, and putting a patent with a new name. Like they would take uh, old hammy bamboo, they would clone it, they'd give it a new name like morning breeze or sunrise or something, and they would patent it. And that's an exact replica. So even though you can see uh, the patent as described here, uh, I've had first witnessed firsthand how people are just kind of stepping in. Anytime you clone or do any kind of a, a propagation in that vein, you're making exact replica of what was there. So, but I know you, you want to go in a direction with this, so go ahead. 
Absolutely, because in the 1930s, Monsanto begins its long history of making hybrid seeds to produce more yields than with traditional heirloom seeds. Since the majority of the seeds from the harvest cannot be used, Monsanto has returning customers year after year. While this is not in and of itself a mandatory thing, since no one is forcing the farmers to purchase Monsanto seeds, one could still suggest that they would want to do so anyway, since they are getting considerably more profit from the same. Amount of land. To add to this, if they don't do it, it is almost a guarantee that others are going to do it. During the 1930s, we also see Monsanto expanding into detergents, soaps, industrial cleaning products, synthetic rubber products, and various forms of plastic, which will continue heavily into the next few decades. You know, I think it was in my lifetime. I'm not 100% sure, but I remember it that way.、Uh, the first time that I ever heard of something like a seedless watermelon. So, if you're a farmer that's growing a seedless watermelon,、uh, how do you get seed to, to plant another crop of seedless watermelons, right? But this is where it starts to really get into a vein that's scary to me.、Uh, when you start messing with all the things that grow in the world to be ready for this pesticide or that pesticide, or to genetically modify them so that you can't get seed from a plant, let it mature and get seed, you're really starting to mess with things. And anyone who's interested in this can go look at the turn of the 1900s how many varieties of what's called heirloom apples. Or tomatoes, or potatoes for that matter, in this country. It's staggering to the point where there are places all over the country now that are trying to revive and preserve many of these heirloom varieties because we've gone from many thousands in some cases down to just a handful. In other cases, it's only a hundred that have been reclaimed. And a similar thing, by the way, is going on with poultry and other things. But、um, go ahead, Jason. So, this next bit is also taken out of mainstream history, so take it as you will. But in the 1940s, we have Monsanto and the Dayton Project. And this was a research and development project to produce polonium during World War II as part of the larger Manhattan Project to build the first atomic bombs. Work took place at several sites in and around Dayton, Ohio. Those working on the project were ultimately responsible for creating the polonium based modulated neutron initiators, which were used to begin the chain reactions in the atomic bombs. The Dayton project began in 1943 when Monsanto's Charles Allen Thomas was recruited by the Manhattan Project to coordinate the plutonium purification and production work being carried out at various sites. Scientists at the Los Alamos Laboratory calculated that a plutonium bomb would require a neutron initiator. The best known neutron sources used radioactive polonium and beryllium, so Thomas undertook to produce polonium at Monsanto's laboratories in Dayton. While most Manhattan Project activity took place at remote locations, the Dayton Project was located in a populated urban area. It ran from 1943 to 1949 when the Mound Laboratories were completed in nearby Miamisburg, Ohio, and the work moved there. The Dayton Project developed techniques for extracting polonium from the lead dioxide ore in which it occurs naturally and from bismuth targets that had been bombarded by neutrons in a nuclear reactor. Ultimately, polonium based neutron initiators were used in both the gun type Little Boy and the implosion type Fat Man used in the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, respectively. The fact that polonium was used as an initiator was classified until the 1960s, but George Koval, a technician with the Manhattan Project's Special Engineer Detachment, penetrated the Dayton Project as a spy for the former Soviet Union. 
Holy guacamole here, Jason. What am I going <laughs> to say about all this? So, um, all right. The real truth here is this is all just a cover story. What was actually going on was this was a poppycock farm. They were raising poppycocks. Um, I think anyone who follows very often understands that I do not accept any of this nuclear nonsense. But we had to put it on the record because it is in the acceptable timeline. But, I mean, come on. Nonsense. Uh, just nonsense. Go ahead, Jason. Next, let's talk about polystyrene. This is a synthetic aromatic hydrocarbon polymer made from the monomer styrene. Polystyrene can be solid or foamed. General purpose polystyrene is clear, hard, and rather brittle. It is an inexpensive resin per unit weight. It is a rather poor barrier to oxygen and water vapor and has a relatively low melting point. Polystyrene is one of the most widely used plastics, the scale of its production being several million tons per year. Polystyrene can be naturally transparent, but can be colored with colorants. Uses include protective packaging, such as packing peanuts and CD and DVD cases, containers, such as clamshells, lids, bottles, trays, tumblers, disposable cutlery, and in the making of models. Polystyrene is slow to biodegrade and is therefore a focus of controversy among environmentalists. It is increasingly abundant as a form of litter in the outdoor environment, particularly along shores and waterways, especially in its foam form, and also in increasing quantities in the Pacific Ocean. Polystyrene was manufactured for decades by both IG Farben and Monsanto. You know, it wasn't too long ago, Jason, when you saw the real push to remove uh, plastic bags from grocery stores. And in a lot of places, I've actually seen that they're not doing it. In others, I see that they are using it. But I've also noticed that a lot of takeout that you get uh, in places that are probably not the healthiest places to eat, and actually a lot of Chinese uh, restaurants as well, you still see what I assume is polystyrene. It has the same look and feel. And to be honest, I'm not 100% sure uh, that they haven't changed it in some way. But for some reason, the idea... You know, for a while there, you would see like brown paper, recycled brown paper is what you would get for your takeout and other things. But now it seems to me we're seeing as much as that polystyrene looking stuff as we ever had. And I would ask, you know, so much of the, the woes of the world is thrown on the, the populace at general. You know, like, look at all this litter. You people suck. You're littering. Uh, I would ask, where's the responsibility from the people who are manufacturing these things that are not biodegradable? It's a little bit like the whole uh, gasoline for cars. You know, all you people drive too much and you're causing global warming, which I don't accept. But the point is, is there are oil companies making the only fuel we have to get around. So really, who is more culpable here? And this whole idea of polystyrene, I think, fits the same mold from my point of view, Jason. Do you remember way back when McDonald's actually had the big nasty styrofoam containers that their larger sandwiches would come in? I kind of do, but I haven't eaten there in so long. It, it's all changed now, I guess, is what you're getting at? Oh, for a very long time, they've been using paper wrappers. Ah, well, I, I guess that's a step in the right direction. Uh, the, the food's not gotten any healthier, but at least uh, polystyrene's not rapid. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would imagine. I, I, you couldn't pay me to eat there, to be honest. So getting back to Bayer's wonderful history, as early as the autumn of 1914, in response to a suggestion from the German Ministry of War, a commission had been established to deal with the use of poisonous waste from the already rather large chemical industry. 
This commission was chaired by Fritz Haber, who is director of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute, Carl Deusberg of the Bayer Company, and the chemist Walter Nernst. The commission recommended the use of chlorine gas, which was a deliberate violation of the Hague Convention respecting the laws and customs of war on land, under which chemical warfare had been banned since the year 1907. Carl Deusberg was present during early tests of poison gas, and he is reported to have enthusiastically praised the new weapon. The enemy won't even know when an area has been sprayed with it and will remain quietly in place until the consequences occur. Under Carl Deusberg's leadership, Bayer continued to develop increasingly lethal chemical weapons, first phosgene and later mustard gas. Deusberg vehemently demanded that they be used. This phosgene is the meanest weapon I know. I strongly recommend that we not let the opportunity of this war pass without also testing gas grenades. At Bayer's headquarters in Leverkusen, a school for chemical warfare was built. You know, I don't know what to make of all this, Jason. We kind of assume from a, a mainstream history that these things were done. Uh, we see people villainized like Saddam Hussein all the time for having used chemical weapons. But there's a couple things here. Uh, if you make this, anyone can make it. So if you're using it, everyone else is going to use it is the first idea. But secondarily, um, listen, listen to what he says there. Um, he says, we do this, they don't know it's there until the consequence happens. Well, this goes hardcore against the idea of universal law. How many things do we see pre-echoed and hinted at that happen in the world that most people would not agree to and do not care for? Well, this is that same idea, except they're saying, look, we can put this thing that'll trap people. They have no way to know they're walking into the trap, and then wham, they're hit with this. So I am not sure what to make of this, Jason. I'm, I'd be surprised if it didn't happen on some level. But, I mean, come on, uh, what what kind of a, a living human being would ever push for this to be used in any real way? Well, there's no doubt that gas was used. There's, there's just too much evidence. And you can make it yourself with certain home ingredients. So there's definitely a reality to it. Of course, it's so long ago now, it's hard to say exactly to what extent that we could prove it. Well, one of the early places I worked out of high school, I actually met uh, a veteran who had lost a lung, to, by his account, to mustard gas. Um, but as you said in this, they, they were outlawing these types of ideas, apparently, in 1907. Um, but I'll remind everyone again, you know, this this has all been brought up recently to villainize, you know, this person or that. I think Saddam was the last one that I remembered who supposedly gassed his own people or the Kurds or I forget exactly what it was. Uh, it smacks of fear porn. And to me, I just don't see how this comes into the modern age very far, uh, to be honest with you. During the First World War and the years after, Bayer formed close relationships with German chemical firms, including BASF and Hoescht. These relationships were solidified in 1925, when Bayer was one of the chemical companies that merged to form the massive German conglomerate IG Farben. It became the largest single company in Germany and went on to become the single largest donor to Adolf Hitler's election campaign. After Hitler came to power, IG Farben is said to have worked in close collaboration with the fascist government, also said to have become the largest profiteer from the events of World War II, although I personally suspect the real top winners were the international bankers. IG Farben is said to have produced the majority of the explosives for the German military, as well as taking over chemical factories in the countries annexed to the Reich or occupied by Germans at the time.
Yeah, yeah, I mean, you, you know where I'm going to come from here, Jason. I accept these these accounts, mostly of World War II. We've demonstrated over and again uh, that the people with all the money, the bankers and others, even people big in our United States political machine were involved in funding both sides of these things. So it goes to show the farce of the whole thing. And whenever I'm reading a mainstream account and, you know, they're going to label someone fascist, it just comes off as propaganda. It's not really interested in any kind of a truth. It's, it's interested in in a point of view that's been put forward and, you know, just to kill it, uh, you and I have demonstrated endlessly that they're the same rich places and banks were funding both sides of this thing. Um, and that's really the real story from my point of view. Next, let's talk about sarin, a highly toxic synthetic organophosphorus compound, a colorless, odorless liquid. It is used as a chemical weapon due to its extreme potency as a nerve agent. Exposure is lethal, even at very low concentrations, where death can occur within 1 to 10 minutes after direct inhalation of a lethal dose due to suffocation from lung muscle paralysis unless antidotes are quickly administered. People who absorb a non-lethal dose but do not receive immediate medical treatment may suffer permanent neurological damage. Sarin is generally considered a weapon of mass destruction. Production and stockpiling of sarin was outlawed as of April 1997 by the Chemical Weapons Convention of 1993, and it is classified as a Schedule I substance. <laughs> well, I guess the, the rules that get made in the world don't apply to the biggest corporations because I could have swore a bullet point ago we pointed out that use of poison gases was outlawed in 1907. You can see what goes on here, Jason. Go, go ahead. So I'm not even going to go into details here, especially since we're in hour one, and many others have already done this. But an IG Farben subsidiary named Degesch supplied the Nazi German government with very large quantities of the pesticide known as Zyklon B between the years 1942 and 1945. So there's been actually a number of people who have gone at the idea of Zyklon B. Um, and again, I do not accept the kind of propagandist accounts of World War II. Uh, I think the real story is to demonstrate that what was actually going on is the, the most wealthy organizations, corporations, banks, and family names in this world were literally funding both sides of this thing. Um, I have taken apart things like the footage we were handed from Pearl Harbor, the footage we were handed from the Midway Island that claims to be real combat. And I've pointed out time and again, you have not got accurate accounts of any of these things. In 1944, Monsanto became one of the first manufacturers of the insecticide DDT, to combat malaria-transmitting mosquitoes. Despite decades of Monsanto propaganda insisting that DDT was safe, the real effect of DDT's human toxicity were at last confirmed through outside research and, in 1972, DDT was banned in the United States. So once again, we have another of these big chemicals that Monsanto no doubt knew was absolutely horrific for human contact, and they just did it anyway. This was one of the biggest deals from an environmentalist standpoint in the 70s, I know, because I was there. DDT was the worst word you could utter back in the 70s, and there was this endless information going on about birds, about eggs, about uh, species on the brink of being destroyed because of the use of DDT. And it goes to show you the kind of weird lopsided world we live in, where if just a, some random human beings in a city somewhere went out and used something like this, there'd be hell to pay. Those people would end up behind bars almost certainly. But then we see a corporation like Monsanto using it wholesale 
you know, trying to make the claim that it's safe and they don't know any better. And yet the outcome of that is on the record. It did massive damage to the environment. And yet, as far as I can tell, no meaningful anything was ever done. And this seems to be the world we live in now, uh, where the corporations pretty much do as they please. Uh, they've bought and paid for the positions they hold. They're going to be responsible for much of the censorship that goes on in our world. After all, almost all the censorship rules uh, that we've ever been shown have to do with government censoring the people and yet here we are in the modern age and what's going on it's the same game as this isn't it it's a it's basically a corporation almost immune to prosecution at any level doing whatever the heck it feels is right but in this case ddt was among the biggest atrocities that i can recall from the 70s and let's not forget that these companies have made their vast amounts of wealth off of producing these products that are horribly harmful to humanity and they just did it anyway. Well, you know, it's it's going on right now with the whole opioid epidemic idea. You know, it, it's almost like nobody in this country is bright enough to understand that the dealer is the problem. Who's the dealer? Um, they do all these other things town halls, they go after doctors and accuse them of over-prescribing. They do all these things when the fact remains that basically what's happened is a corporation made this stuff by the by the ship tonnage load um, and then distributed it out and did all the marketing it always does and incentives for the medical community, all these things. So it's not hard to understand where the opioid problem stems from, yet that is never addressed. It hasn't been addressed as far as I know, and I doubt if it will be. It's just another example of corporations rising to a prominent level of wealth and importance where you really can't touch them. Uh, it, with, with a problem like opioids, it seems like it would be a simple thing to understand where it's coming from, but that's not really the story we ever see, is it? Mm -mm, not at all. In 1945, with the defeat of the Axis powers and the ending of World War II, IG Farben came under Allied control. The company's industries, as well as those of other German firms at the time, were to be dismantled or radically restructured with the stated intent to render impossible any future threat to Germany's neighbors or to world peace. In the western zones of Germany, however, especially as the Cold War came to be, the attitude toward total obliteration of these companies declined. Eventually, the Western powers and West Germans agreed to divide IG Farben into just three independent companies, Hoescht, Bayer, and BASF. After this splintering, a publicly traded shell company was left behind, which declared bankruptcy in 2003. The shell company's full name was IG Farben in liquidation, and it was always intended to expire and existed only to give victims an entity against which to make reparations claims. <laughs> I'll just say one thing here, Jason. Uh, it's the biggest chess game in the world, isn't it? That's basically what this is. Here, attack this over here. <laughs> <laughs> 1946, the Nuremberg War Crimes Tribunal concluded that without IG Farben, the World War, that World War II would not have been possible. The chief prosecutor, Telford Taylor, is supposed to be on record stating that these companies, not the lunatic Nazi fanatics, are the main war criminals. If the guilt of these criminals is not brought to daylight, and if they are not punished, they will pose a much greater threat to the future peace of the world than Hitler if he were still alive. Their indictment stated that due to the activities of IG Farben, the life and happiness of all peoples in the world were adversely affected. Charges as grave as fomenting war and killing slave laborers were also added. In his opening statement, the Nuremberg chief prosecutor pointed out that 
The indictment accuses these men of major responsibility for visiting upon mankind the most searing and catastrophic war in human history. It accuses them of wholesale enslavement, plunder, and murder. So here's where the whole idea of fictitious entities comes to bear, right? So when he's saying them and they, he's pointing to a corporation. Corporation's a dead body that has no life. So who's actually done the crime here, if you see what I'm getting at? All the human beings that run a corporation are bound by law to do certain things within a corporation. And if they don't violate the laws of corporation, those human beings are protected from any legal assault of any kind. On the other hand, if they do violate the supposed laws of corporation, the, the corporate veil can be pierced. But I would point out here that he's saying IG Farben. You see, you see the game that's being played here? He's pointing at a non-living entity as having caused all this misery. And now the real power of fictitious legal entities is starting to show in your face. It's being stated here that this corporation is the real problem. It did all these things. Hitler was nothing compared to what we're pointing at here, but what's ever been done about it and what could be done about it? Can we stick a, a corporation, a dead body with no life? Can we stick that in jail? Um, just to make a point, Jason. Well, no matter what happened, it had to have been a collusion of men to do what they did. Period. And I strongly suspect, as I stated earlier, that the international bankers were at the heart of it all. Well, I don't see anywhere in this bullet point where the prosecutor's saying, you, Jim Jones, or, you know, a German dude who was running this place, he's saying the name of a corporation. You can see the stage that's been set here. All the world's a stage, and what you're looking at is the act going on here. It is one thing to actually meaning make a meaningful move to, to make a reparation or to punish or to do whatever you're after here, but to do that, there has to be a living man or a woman, and that's not what we see here. We see a corporation cited that has no life and they cannot be jailed. And that goes on over and over and over. This went on uh, the, the largest transfer of wealth that happened under Bush the Jr.'s administration. Trillions of dollars. And was this about people? No, it's about corporations, right? These are non-entities. They can't be, you can't sit the, the bear or Monsanto down in a seat and say, listen, bear, you've been a bad boy. You know why? Because they're a corporation. It's just a fictitious entity. So that's my main point here. If the, if the prosecutor's not going to say Jim Jones or Suey May Willis or whoever, the name of a living human being, it's basically just the stage being set for another act, if you think about it. And I do wonder how many of their people got paperclipped in some way, shape, or form, since we know they took the rocket guys. So I'm sure they were also wanting anything they came up with to wage war. Well, you can see the chess game, right? They're going to divide up this big old thing, and they're going to, you know, here, you take this piece, we'll take that piece. And it's just a chess game going on, isn't it? You know, and they even, at the end of that, you were even pointing out that they left some some entity so that the people that had been hurt could make reparations. Well, I, I would venture to say that uh, the whole entire known amount of human beings in this world was hurt by World War II, right? So it's all a bit disingenuous. It's it's the shell game. It's these fictitious entities that have no reality being spoken of and treated as if they do. And the fact is they do not. That's going to do it for hour one. In hour two, we're going to get back to Monsanto and their relationship with the Walt Disney Company and, of course, continue on up to today with all the horrible things these companies do.
It goes to show you in the modern age, man, it is really the, the big corporations uh, that make life so difficult and uh, threaten the rights of a living man or a woman. And at the end of the day, even look what I just said, a corporation, a non-existent entity. And that really shows you the power of these fictitious legal ideas uh, in, in order to, to get things done with no accountability on the backside of it. Uh, but anyhow, Jason, that does bring our one of episode 129 to a close. I'll remind everyone that uh, Sunday nights at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Jason and I have a live show called Crow 777 Live on Truth Frequency Radio, where we're trying to bring a common sense voice of reason. There is a live chat free to everyone there, and we hope to see you all next week. By the way, join us over at Crow 777 Radio, where free speech still rules. We'll see how long this world allows it, but there it is, man. Cheers.